Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. After two decades, Western forces have all but left Afghanistan. Has NATO's retreat handed victory to the Taliban? There's a possibility of a complete Taliban takeover or a possibility of any number of other scenarios, breakdowns, warlordism, all kinds of other scenarios that are out there. Momentum appears to be, strategic momentum appears to be sort of with the Taliban. What legacy will it leave behind? People just assume it's all about Taliban, it's all about men with beers, and it's all about fighting Kalashnikov and rocks. It's not. It's about an awful lot more than that. This week, over two episodes, we're looking at both Afghanistan's past and its uncertain future. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today... Leaving Afghanistan, part one, the 20-year war. My name is Anthony Lloyd, foreign correspondent for The Times. I have worked for The Times for 28 years and been going to Afghanistan for 25 years. Anthony's just come back from another trip to Afghanistan, to see how the country's coping as Western forces withdraw. One of the first things you need as a foreign correspondent on an assignment is a good driver. It's got to be the right kind of car. It's got to be very low profile. It's got to have good engine wheels, but look tatty. But he's also got to be the guy that if you're getting out of the car and speaking to people, the driver's got to be the guy who's parked off a bit. He's looking there to see if there's any threat. When he's driving you, you want him eyes up in the mirrors, looking to see if you're being followed, if you're being tailed. And any problems, he needs to be the guy who just rings up, says you've got a problem coming your way, leave now. So the driver's really key component in a hostile environment as part of your team. For years, Anthony's relied on an Afghan driver called Fahim. Fahim is a very tough guy from the Shamali plain, north of Kabul. He's seen it all before. But this time... I turned up and got the night flight, as I usually do, so you arrive early in the morning at Kabul airport. There was no sign of Fahim. So after a while, I rang him. I was like, Fahim, where are you? He sounded terrible. So quickly then, 
I rang a fixer, the fixer being the translator, guide, producer who I work with there. And I was like, Fame sounds in an awful state. Why is he late? And he's like, oh, yeah, no, he's in hospital. He's been shot twice through both legs with the Kalashnikov. And in modern Afghanistan, that, that's a thing. Oh, oh, that's the thing, but that's happening much more. Fahim had been shot by a soldier who was a neighbour, and there had been some neighbourly dispute which has escalated, and the guy had shot Fahim. One of the byproducts, if there's a really intense war, is that the normal forces of, of law and order, such as they are in Afghanistan, start stepping back. People are a lot more desperate, and criminals are, are many more in number, better armed, and far more opportunistic. And also, people, you know, disputes like Fahim's dispute with his neighbour are far more likely to escalate to Kalashnikov fire. So, your poor driver is stuck in hospital. What happens to you in the meantime? Oh, his nephew turned up, who was rather sweet, part of the fam and all the rest of it, but didn't have much clue. I wanted to go to the big cemetery in Western Kabul. Western Kabul is a great gauge of the overall progress of conflict around the Afghan capital. Mm. It's the scene and target of many, many of the worst attacks, some of them conducted by Islamic State, some of them conducted by the Taliban. So the cemetery above Western Kabul, one, it offers an amazing vista of the city itself. For me, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but it's one of the most romantic cities in the world. It's so dramatic. It's cupped between the mountains. There's always just this thrilling feeling. It's got a tremendous insolence to it and humour and charm. And from the slopes of the cemetery, you can see out right across the city. But also, it's a place to see what's going on by talking to grave diggers, like, who are you burying? And to find out who is dying and how. You know, dead men and grave diggers don't lie. Tell me about the grave diggers you met there. You know... They're Afghans, they're kind of enduring and quite humorous. So they were saying to me, yeah, well, technically business is good, but it brings us no joy. There's a lot of people dying. It's a very violent time. And from their position on the slopes of Western Kabul as well, they see many of the attacks going on. The Sayyid al-Shuhada school, which was bombed on, I think it was the 8th of May this year. This is the price girls had to pay just for going to school in Kabul today. Islamic militants in Afghanistan oppose education for girls. And now that American troops are leaving this country, the extremists are trying to stop it. More than 85 schoolgirls were killed and another 150-plus wounded. That's only 850 metres away from the area of the cemetery I was. And uh, so I spoke to one of the gravediggers who had seen the engine block from the first suicide vehicle that went off flying through the air. So they see a lot of the attacks going on inside Kabul. Many of the girls, not all of the 85, had been buried there. On a remote hill above Kabul, flanked by the high Hindu Kush mountains, they came in the hundreds to bury their daughters. Then they get people who have been killed by assassinations, plus they get, you know, at the moment, a hell of a lot of people who have died due to corona. And when you say terrorists, is this the Taliban as we'd know it? No, it's a mixture. Many, probably the majority of recent attacks, have been conducted by Islamic State. However, some of them have been conducted by Taliban. And then there is a kind of grey grouping of attacks as well, which no one's really sure who did it 
And it's convenient for the Taliban mm. to say, oh, it's Islamic State. It doesn't make them look as bad. But it's it's a bit unclear as to actually whose command structure initiated or ordered those attacks. You know, it was almost certain that it was Islamic State who, who bombed the high school on, on May the 8th. They claimed it. Now, w- what's really significant about this? This comes at a time when the US-led coalition, comprising mainly of NATO nations, is leaving, mm. supposedly having gone to Afghanistan to deal there with a terrorist threat 20 years ago. Now, at the same time, America is sort of saying in rather quiet tones, so as not to make the same mistake as George Bush did in Iraq, you know, mission accomplished. Basically, President Biden is saying, you know, we've completed our mission in Afghanistan. It is time to leave. For Afghans, it might feel like history is repeating itself. Mujahideen and rebel soldiers are fighting to take control. In 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. The country was turned upside down, caught in a sort of proxy war between the Russians on one side and insurgents, the Mujahideen, backed by America on the other. The Russians have recently moved combat troops into Afghanistan to strengthen the depleted army. The Russians must be aware their involvement in Afghanistan could easily backfire. It was a conflict that would end in defeat for the Russians. But once they'd withdrawn, America appeared to lose interest. As soon as the Russians were out, everybody left the playing field. So you just got this runaway civil war. It led to the rise of the Taliban, the hardline religious movement, they quickly filled the void left by the toppled Afghan government. They banned girls from going to school. They banned television and music. Justice, at least the Taliban's version of it, was swift and brutal. By the end of the 90s, the Taliban controlled almost 90% of the country. And it wasn't really until al-Qaeda started setting up camps there, which finally led to the 9-11 attacks, that Afghanistan fell into the arena again, of international focus. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes. We are joined in this operation by our staunch friend, Great Britain. In December 2001, the Taliban's regime fell. The Islamic Republic of Afghanistan was born and a government chosen. But... Fifteen years after the Taliban were toppled, Afghan forces are losing their long war against a revitalized insurgency. For more than a decade, the Afghan government and international armed forces would continue to do battle with a resurgent Taliban more than 30,000 civilians would lose their lives. 3,500 coalition troops would be killed. We must deny al-Qaeda a safe haven. We must reverse the Taliban's momentum and deny it the ability to overthrow the government. The spores of the Taliban kicked all across the country or by and large pursued out into Pakistan. Until in 2014, under political pressure at home, NATO leaders declared combat operations were over. I think our troops can leave with their heads held high over a job very well done. I think it is good enough. It is not perfect. 
it is still a America's combat mission will be over by the end of this year. Starting next year, Afghans will be fully responsible for securing their country. But leaving would be a protracted process until last year. Years they've been trying to do this, and today the United States signed a deal with the Taliban. And I'll say this for the Taliban, they're great fighters. All you have to do is ask the Soviet Union. But they, they're tired also. After years of rebuilding foreign nations, we are finally rebuilding our nation and taking care of our own American citizens. It's time, right? It's time. It's time for American troops to come home. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. Two Republicans, two Democrats. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. That mission was to neutralize terrorist threat that might be directed at America. But what you've got now is, one, it's very unclear whether the terrorist threat that might be projected from Afghanistan to America has been neutralized at all. But certainly, you've got terrorist attacks occurring in Afghanistan on a repeated and large scale. And when you see you know, this escalation of violence, you see 85 girls dying in, a, in an attack on a school, you see grieving parents. Tell me about the father of the girl that you met. His name was Mohammed Amin, and his daughter was called Akala. He was coming back from work when the bomb went off. He rushed to a hospital. He found the body of his daughter there. She had been killed by a very small bit of shrapnel, which had hit just above her eyebrow and got into her head. He said to me, I cannot describe my feelings of my daughter's death. All I can say is that when I looked at the face of the girl I loved and raised, I turned to the doctor and said, this cannot be my daughter, for my daughter cannot be dead. What do you say to somebody who's just gone through that? Oh, I don't try and say to them anything. I can't reach that grief. If someone says something like that, then the best thing you can say is nothing. So I let that silence hang. And I say at the end, thank you for speaking to me at this time. I've intruded in your life, a time of extreme pain. You've taken the trouble to speak to me. I'm really sorry. And then you go. You can't say much more than that. You've been going there for a number of years now. I mean, how does the current level of attacks and terrorist incidents compare to recent years and even to 20 years ago? Oh, it's unparalleled. Oh, without doubt. I mean, Kabul was not subjected to that level of terrorist attack 20 years ago at all. You know, terrorist attacks are, are not the norm inside Afghanistan, by which I mean, you know, girls' schools getting bombed, multiple bombings occurring on the same day. That is something which has started over recent years and is worse now than at any time before. It's appalling. And this, this is a, an appalling example of the kind of attacks we're seeing now. And this comes at a time when America and NATO are leaving. And one of the things they always held up as an achievement in Afghanistan was allowing girls to go to school, allowing girls to be educated. It does feed into lots of fears of what might come next. Naturally, they're extremely concerned about what happens when the final Americans leave. But I mean, basically, you know, let's cut to it. The Americans and Brits have left already. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a very small number there in the city, but they haven't got the power to project themselves or influence the scene in any meaningful way anymore. And they're all but out of there and they'll be gone, the remnants who are invisible 
to the community in Kabul, they'll all be gone within a few weeks. So there's two elements to the fear. Will we be the subject of a sectarian war? The other big fear they have is, will our women be allowed to work again? Will they be fired en masse? Will our daughters be able to go back to school again? Or is that the end of education for women? Now, the Taliban keeps saying, no, things have changed and they're going to allow you know, women to be educated and women to remain in employment in Afghanistan. That's what they keep saying in Doha. Now, a senior Afghan delegation is in Doha to meet representatives of the Taliban as violence continues to escalate in Afghanistan. But over the last couple of months, when the Taliban offensive has picked up around the compass face in Afghanistan, that's not really the message that we're getting from the ground. The armed group has been taking advantage of the US withdrawal, launching offensives and capturing large parts of the country. The two sides have been meeting on and off now for months, but the talks have lost momentum as the fighting continues to rage back home. We're hearing of communities where schools are burnt down, teachers are being shot, and the Taliban seem very much to kind of reinforce exactly the same Taliban template as they tried to enforce over 20 years ago. So it seems, you know, back to the future. Coming up, Anthony recalls some tense moments from the front line as the NATO strategy unraveled. But first... Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As NATO troops leave Afghanistan, for Anthony Lloyd, the end of the campaign has brought 25 years of reporting from the country for the Times into sharp focus. Not least, memories of his very first visit in February 1996. Oh my God. I tell you what, I've been in a couple of wars before I went to Afghanistan. I've been in Chechnya for the war between the Chechens and Russians too. I've been in Grozny, so I, you know knew what a, a ruined city could look like. Yeah. I went to Kabul at the tail end of the civil war between various Mujahideen groups and at the advent of the war with the Taliban. Much of the city was a complete wreck. Some areas were totally destroyed. Millions of the city's population had left for Pakistan or Iran. That was a vision of what runaway civil war looked like in Afghanistan. And you were there around 9-11 when... America and its allies, including the UK, went in. I mean, just remind us, take us back to, to that period. So the 9-11 attacks happened. America quickly pinned it on bin Laden, rightfully so. 
Bin Laden was located in Afghanistan and, and America said to the Taliban, well, you've been hosting this guy and Al-Qaeda, so hand him over. The Taliban said, no, they wouldn't hand him over. America sent a very, very small force of special forces, British special forces going in as well, other NATO special forces going in, backed by aircraft. Explosions over Kabul, over Kandahar, over Jalalabad. The battle is now joined on many fronts. And they found on the ground a very natural ally, the Northern Alliance, mm. um, who had been fighting the Taliban for years, and very quickly, in a matter of a few months, even weeks, rolled up the Taliban, recaptured Kabul in November 2001. The Taliban were very quickly overthrown. Bin Laden was not located or captured in Afghanistan. That wouldn't happen for several more years. And when it did, it happened that he was killed in, in Pakistan. But then what happened? You had a series of really big military mistakes. Now, it's kind of in vogue now for the military as they withdraw to put it all on, on their governments and say, look, we were tactically victorious. We were politically defeated. Politicians never seriously sat down with the Taliban. There was never a serious attempt to get peace and all the rest of it. Let's be absolutely clear about this. Western militaries played a really significant role in what we've got now, which is the defeat of Western military might in Afghanistan. They went in, they harried communities down in the south and committed themselves to areas of Afghanistan like Helmand, which are really not centres of gravity for the country. But if you send soldiers in there, the locals will oppose you. And if you start killing those locals in large numbers, as British and Americans did, then you will antagonise far greater areas of the community. The more violent the war became, the more Taliban it actually generated. You talked about what unfolded in Helmand. I mean, you covered the war down there quite a lot. I mean, take us, you know, skip forward a few years. We've got some footage that you recorded in 2007. Describe what we're seeing here. OK, that was with the Royal Marines coming to contact, coming to a firefight with the Taliban. I remember that well. So we're in a, a walled enclosure. Those walls, years of packed mud and straw, mm. were ninja. The bullets wouldn't even go through. They were taking fire from a uh, tree line just in front of us. Up on the roof, you've got forward air controller. I remember he called in an Apache. The Apache came in, strafed the tree line with its ordnance and killed three or four guys, Taliban in the ditch. I remember it blew off one of their arms. And as soon as it had finished its mission, you got this guy with a wheelbarrow running up and putting the bits of the bodies on the wheelbarrow. And I remember picking up an arm and chucking that on the uh, wheelbarrow too, and then running off again. Oh, God. I'll tell you what, that's indicative of something, though, because the guy with the wheelbarrow is a farmer. Now, it wasn't that he just thought, oh, my God, there's a firefight and look, some insurgents have been killed. I think I'll just crawl off back home and hope I don't get, get hit. He's like, wow, as soon as the Apache's gone, I'm going to risk my life running out 
picking up the bodies of Taliban insurgents, putting them on my barrow and trying to get them, presumably, to a mosque so they could be washed and buried. That signified, that farmer's actions signified exactly where his loyalties lay in that. And that was being played out through every district in Helmand. I mean, it also signifies an industrial level of killing. Oh, yeah. And I remember, you know, talking about this with British officers at the Times and some of them got it. Many didn't, may I add, but some of them got it. They said, we have an overarching ability to kill almost anyone we want in Helmand. Kill them with a drone, kill them with a jet, kill them with an Apache, kill them with a sniper round, kill them with a machine gun. We can do it. We can inset their comms and we can kill them. But it doesn't solve the problem. It actually Mm. makes it worse. The art of this war, which we didn't learn until too late, was how to restrain yourselves. That made the problem bigger rather than smaller. And very soon, it was a kind of paradoxical situation. And as Commander-in-Chief, I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 US troops to Afghanistan. These are the resources that we need to seize the initiative. I was equally fooled out there at that time. I thought, you know, the surge, the big Afghan surge, the surge had been effective in Iraq, and I hoped and believed that it would be effective at its peak in 2010 in Afghanistan. Fort Lewis, Washington is home to the Army's 5th Striker Brigade. They're heading to Afghanistan as part of President Barack Obama's plan to add 17,000 troops to the struggling war effort in that country. Personally, I'm looking stoked to go because I thought Iraq was pretty fun. And I do want to say as well, the Taliban were never popular. And I was in Afghanistan during the tenure of their power before 2001. You know, they weren't popular across Afghanistan. However, as time went by, people found that the Taliban were less irritating and less loathsome than foreign soldiers who have come into our territory and killing our people. That really antagonises Afghans. And foreign soldiers brought very little reward. In some areas they brought schooling, but in many areas what followed foreign soldiers' advances was not a coherent, credible and uncorrupt form of governance. By then, by 2007, when we had a massive presence down down south, was there a sense of mission creep from what the mission had been in 2001 when we first went in? Oh, totally. Missions to kind of rout out al-Qaeda cells were, were, were long gone. I remember speaking to General Nick Carter, who was at the time commander of Sector South, and I think he told me that his in guys hadn't never even heard an Arab voice intercepted on the radio by that stage. The mission was into you know, well into nation building then. It was trying to support local authorities, trying to build schools. And then it fluctuated wildly with counter-narcotics missions. Sometimes they went, soldiers went around telling local communities that don't worry, we'll let you grow poppy. We're not here to mess with your poppy. And at other times they kind of supported local forces in trying to destroy poppy crops and make them grow wheat or whatever. It was kind of all over the place. Do you understand what it is that we as the coalition forces are trying to do? We've got some more of your your footage here. Describe what we're seeing. Okay, this is quite interesting. There was a mobile operations group, Royal Marines, in these little track vehicles actually designed for the snow, but they work quite well on the sand. So they'd gone miles off into the middle of nowhere, found these communities and really were seeing what was going on. And in this particular area, they found all these guys coming out of a mosque in the middle of nowhere, all of them looking like 
Pacini sticker Taliban. I mean, they just look absolutely like Taliban, only they weren't armed. They were all of combat age. But but the <laughs> Marine commander's like, okay, well, let's sit down and have a chat. So he kind of sat down and, and, and it was quite a sort of engaged conversation. It's, hmm, how do you feel about us being here? And these people looked at him like with daggers. And then he said, We're not here to eradicate the poppy either. We're not here to destroy your poppy. We're really not. And they're all kind of still looking at him like daggers. I remember all the Marines around me were saying, look, they've just, they've got an arms cache somewhere here. They've just put all their, their weapons in the arms cache. They've, gone to the mosque to pray and it just happens we've rocked up at this moment and on another day at another hour this could be the middle of a huge far fight i mean just looking at those images i mean they all look very suspicious and he's clearly sort of trying to engage and forward leaning he's trying to be very polite and very british and uh yeah how does it make you feel today when you see us here because it's important that you don't feel threatened from us because we are here to help they don't seem to be buying it. No, they don't. Okay, this is in the back of one of the Vikings, and this is in contact. These are the Royal Marines leaping out the back of their armoured vehicle and running across very flat land. They're overlooking a valley where they were getting shot at from the Taliban in the valley. I remember the sergeant shouting, Watch your back, lads, watch your back. Looking back at those images now, remembering what it was like, knowing what you do, knowing that in 2021 everyone leaves, violence even in Kabul is escalating. How do you look back on those images now? With a degree of real sadness, actually. I think there were very high hopes and very genuine aspirations of the Marines I'm looking at now. I remember very well. I was in the company for about nine days on this patrol. It went on for ages. There was one guy who was a very, very quiet young Marine, he was like 19 years old. And the others explained to me, oh, he was quiet because, you know, a few weeks ago we we did a, a vehicle checkpoint in the middle of the desert on some road and these cars we'd waved down to stop and a car at the back overtook the queue and came towards us. And the commander said, stop that car. And this raw Marine pumped a couple of rounds through the windscreen. It hit the driver, who was the father, went straight through his throat the head of the woman behind him, who was his wife, who was holding their newborn child. The car lost the track, went down a gully and rolled. Oh. And by the time the Royal Marines got to it, the baby had had his neck broken. So that young Royal Marine reacting to stop that car and in two rounds had killed a family of three. No weapons in the car, nothing. They weren't, they weren't suicide bombers. They just couldn't understand being shouted at, stop. So no wonder he didn't say much. We've got to remember well, you know, it's a volunteer army. British soldiers volunteer to join the army. There's a series of choices in there, which Afghans living in Helmand didn't have. We killed hundreds of unarmed people down there, if not thousands. We might not have meant to, or in some cases we certainly did mean to. There was a rate of fire among some of the units there. As time went on, things got less and less disciplined. If a unit got into contact, you know, it's the official rapid rate of fire. Some units also had a rate of fire called murder rate. And if they went into murder rate, they would kill anyone down the range. You know, they would kill man, woman, child, anybody down there. It's the kind of thing which 
is talked about only within their units. You'll never get a senior officer who talks about that. But, you know, there's a lot of dark secrets coming back with units who had served in Afghanistan. Now, there were others in that patrol who on subsequent tours would have been very seriously injured indeed. And I know certainly one of them who was killed. So there were young men put in very, very harsh situations down there, which would have had great influence and effects in a negative way on their life. I'll be paying a price now for overall for what? Join us tomorrow for part two as we look to Afghanistan's future. We're armed guys at the side of the road. Whose checkpoint is that? Well, this could be fun. I'm just driving up past the Taliban position again. Anthony goes out on patrol with some rather nervous Afghan security forces. The night when we were attacked, the fighter planes arrived. They didn't fire a single bullet toward the Taliban. Maybe the government has sold us. And he speaks to the Taliban. So I went in, I found these three Taliban. They were so stoned. As soon as I was shaking hands, I was thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen? These guys don't look like they're going to get it together for an interview. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Anthony Lloyd, Times foreign correspondent. You can find Anthony's dispatches from the front line at thetimes.co.uk or in print. Today's episode was produced and sound designed by James Shield. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and it was mixed by Falcon Kisseltuk. We'll be back tomorrow with part two. You won't want to miss it. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.